For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. History This Week, April 5th, 1918. I'm Sally Helm. On city street corners across the country, People pick up the paper on their way to work. Every major headline is about World War I. Germans begin new drive. Allied fronts holding well. Terrific German smash as French make slight gains. Everyone, everywhere, is thinking about war. But meanwhile, in doctors' offices and public health agencies, a different kind of report has just arrived. Not that many people read it. Later, they'll wish they had. The report is called, simply, Public Health Reports. The U.S. Public Health Service puts it out every week. It helps doctors and hospitals stay up to date on the diseases circulating in the country. And, tucked away in the middle, there's the mention of a mysterious flu. Quote, on March 30th, 1918, the occurrence of 18 cases of influenza of severe type from which three deaths resulted was reported in Haskell, Kansas. <coughs> no one knows it yet, but this flu that killed three people in Kansas will go on to become a pandemic. Today, a virus spreads. The influenza outbreak of 1918 was the most deadly pandemic in modern history, killing an estimated 50 to 100 million people worldwide. It was the second most deadly outbreak of all time. The first was the plague in the 1300s. We're talking about this today for obvious reasons. COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus, is spreading around the world. If there's one feature of the great influenza epidemic of 1918 and the coronavirus outbreak, this feature is fear of the unknown. There are many, many differences between the two, but I think fear is still something that we as human beings experience when we're faced with something new and unknown and potentially dangerous. So today, we look back on another pandemic. How, in a time before widespread global travel, did the influenza of 1918 spread so far, so fast? And what does it tell us about today's outbreak? What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. 
Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Hi, it's Jeremy Brown. Hi, this is Sally. How are you? Hi, Sally. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Is your phone just ringing off the hook right now with influenza-related calls? It actually is. These days, Dr. Jeremy Brown is in high demand. He's an emergency doctor. He treated people during the swine flu outbreak of 2009. He's written a book about the history of influenza. And he's now the director of the Office of Emergency Care Research at the National Institutes of Health. Basically, when a disease like the new coronavirus breaks out, a lot of people want to talk to Jeremy Brown. I just got an email from our synagogue leadership asking that I join an emergency meeting of all the physicians to decide what we should do in our local synagogue. So this thing is really taking all kinds of weird avenues that I hadn't predicted. We caught Dr. Brown before his synagogue meeting to ask him about the influenza outbreak of 1918. And he said... Before we get to any of that, let's talk vocab. Yeah, it's very important to get the terms right, and you can actually cause a lot of confusion and get into trouble if you don't. So first, what is an epidemic? It's a disease that seems to have more cases than usual in a local region or community. Now, this doesn't in any way reference how deadly the disease is. Meaning, if you have an epidemic of the flu in Washington, D.C. one year... That doesn't necessarily mean the flu is killing tons of people. It just means there are more cases than usual in D.C. And the same goes for the term pandemic. A pandemic, generally speaking, is when that increase in cases of a disease spreads worldwide. More cases around the world, pandemic. But again, the term says nothing about mortality rate. A pandemic doesn't necessarily mean a lot of people are dying. The influenza outbreak of 1918 was definitely a pandemic. And separately, it was a deadly one. This influenza was a novel disease, new to humans. And diseases like that often start out in animals. The HIV pandemic was linked to primates. The new coronavirus may have its origins in bats. Viruses will sometimes circulate in an animal population, then mutate and spread to humans. We know today that the 1918 influenza virus began as a bird virus, spent some time in an intermediate animal host, which could have been pigs, it could have been horses, and then hopped over into humans. We know that because we have done a genetic uh, analysis of the very virus itself. The virus was resurrected. Long story, but yes, scientists a couple decades ago found frozen specimens of this virus and looked into its genetic code. We analyzed it back in the late 90s. So we know that that is where the virus came from. It came from birds, hopped to another animal, and then to us. But we're still not sure exactly where it started spreading in humans. It could have been at a British army camp in France. There was a deadly flu outbreak there in 1916, two years before the pandemic. Or it might have started in China in the summer of 1918. But... Many medical historians believe that the virus began in the U.S., in rural Kansas. 
a place called Haskell County, a farming community. People lived in sod houses, grew grains, raised cattle and hogs. So it makes sense that the virus could have been circulating in farm animals there and then spread to farmers. And the local paper at the time did report a strange illness. Homer Moody has been recorded quite sick. Merton, the young son of Ernest Elliott, is sick with pneumonia. Ralph McConnell has been quite sick this week. In Haskell County, in one day, 18 people fell ill and three died. Now, that episode was curious enough and remarkable enough to prompt a physician called Dr. Loring Minor, who was a rural doctor in Kansas, prompt him to write a report to health officials. This is the report that lands on the desks of doctors and public health workers on April 5th, 1918. The public health reports, that one line about a weird flu. It comes from this guy in Kansas, Dr. Loring Minor. We don't know much about him. He liked to read the Greek classics. He had a big office serving all of Haskell County. And in January and February of 1918, he was concerned, maybe even scared. His report is the first recorded instance of a physician warning about an outbreak of this disease. He was clearly surprised at the large number of deaths in one day and the large number of cases in one day. And we do not know any other details about the outbreak in Haskell County, but we do know that about 300 miles to the east of Haskell County was the U.S. Army's Camp Funston. In 1918, America was fighting in World War I. And there are reports in that same local paper of soldiers from Camp Funston going back and forth to Haskell County. February 21st, Dean Nilsson surprised his friends by arriving home from Camp Funston on a five days furlough. Dean looks like soldier life agrees with him. February 28th, John Bottom leaves for Camp Funston. The paper writes, we predict he will make an ideal soldier. And then, in early March, the first soldier at Camp Funston reports a flu. Army bases, unfortunately, were a hotbed for contagion. People lived in very close quarters, a great deal of crowding and overcrowding. We know from pictures of the hospitals at the time that even patients who were sick were generally put into large gym-like rooms where there were tens or even hundreds of people in one small area, separated perhaps by just a cotton sheet. The disease they got looked a lot like a standard flu, chills and a fever. The vast number of people who got it recovered normally with rest and fluids, but... What was different about the influenza then was that in a small number of cases, it attacked the lungs directly, causing patients to have difficulty breathing, And we have many, many reports of eyewitnesses who saw young men come in in the morning uh, and be dead in the afternoon as they uh, became increasingly blue, which is a symptom that there is not enough oxygen in the blood, and they simply often expired within a few hours. This flu is unusual because it kills otherwise healthy young men. They were getting complications and dying at unusually high rates. As these soldiers moved freely between the camp, the army camp, other army camps, and the civilian world, the virus expanded outwards in waves. So it was a very frightening time. This didn't stay in Kansas, or even in the U.S. 
these soldiers were shipping overseas to join troops around the world, cases started popping up in other countries following the path of troop deployment. But people aren't dying in huge numbers, not yet. And then summer hits, and the virus seems to just go away on its own. By July of 1918, the British Medical Journal reported that influenza was no longer a threat. Of course, that was true at the time. What it didn't know was that the disease was bubbling up under the surface to be rekindled in just a few months. Over the summer, the virus isn't really passing from person to person. Viruses don't do well in hot weather. But some people are still carrying it around inside their bodies. And then the fall comes, temperatures drop, and those remaining strains flare right back up. A second wave hits. This one will kill tens of millions of people. The disease pops up in August at an army camp outside Boston, Camp Devon. About 14,000 soldiers get sick, 750 die. We have a remarkable letter from a young medical orderly whose name was Roy. He wrote the following quote, We eat it, live it, sleep it, and dream it, to say nothing of breathing it 16 hours a day. It beats any sight they ever had in France after a battle. For a military orderly writing in 1918 to say that the sight of deaths from influenza was worse than the sight of the carnage and massacres on the battlefront of Europe in World War I, I think really gives a flavor to just how awful this outbreak was. It's so awful in part because it's incredibly contagious. Two men with the virus arrive at Camp Dodge in Iowa. Six weeks later, 12,000 men had become infected. And then, again, the virus spreads from one army base to hundreds of bases worldwide. And to the cities and civilians around them. London, Africa, it would spread to India. The Australians did their best to keep it out, but were ultimately not successful. It was everywhere, and it struck with a ferocity that, even to this day, is hard for us to really imagine. People are dying. And this new threat is coming on top of the war. It's the tail end of World War I. Armistice comes in November of 1918. But the flu makes those last months even more difficult. The war had been going on for four long years, Towns and communities had already been burying their dead and taking care of their wounded. And now to be hit with this invisible enemy that was not on the battlefronts of Europe, but it was in our very homes, wherever we were. And these countries at war, they don't want to report how many people and how many soldiers are dying of flu. They worry it'll make them look weak. Newspapers seem to have come to a tacit agreement with the military censors not to report influenza. And when they do report the flu, it's generally buried deep inside the newspaper, hard to find. They're downplaying it. Except in one country, Spain. They're neutral in World War I, so they don't have to cover this up. They're reporting the real numbers of people infected. Their outbreak is centered in Valencia. Now, people mistakenly suggested that because the disease was reported in Valencia, Spain, that it had originated there. It certainly had not. People started calling it the Spanish flu. It wasn't accurate, but 
it stuck. Now, because most countries weren't reporting cases, global containment measures at first were virtually non-existent. 40,000 people had already died in the U.S. over a three-month period. And the first thing that the doctors admitted, they said, we have no idea what's causing this pandemic. Viruses had not yet been discovered. They wouldn't be discovered till the early 1930s. People had no idea what was killing them. Some people suggested that it was the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter, that the planets influenced us here on Earth and gave us the flu. So that's, in fact, where we get the word influenza from. It comes from the Italian influenza, influenza meaning influence. So doctors had no idea what was causing the pandemic, and they also had no idea how to treat it. They generally prescribed laxatives at the time. They prescribed alcohol. The chief medical officer of the United Kingdom at the time suggested that everybody should have a sip of champagne and that will help them to overcome the flu. There were also more invasive treatments, like bloodletting. It was thought that removing blood could remove a disease. There was a report from British surgeons. They had tried bloodletting on the soldiers who came down with pneumonia. And when it didn't work and the soldiers died, the same British physicians suggested that the reason that it didn't work was because they hadn't done it early enough. That was the state of medicine back in 1918. So doctors were filling people with laxatives and champagne and then bleeding them half to death, if they're lucky enough to get treatment at all. All of which meant this disease did not end because of medical intervention. But by 1919, one year after that first outbreak in Haskell, Kansas, the spread finally subsides. For a few reasons. Number one, those who caught it and recovered were now immune to it. Number two, the people who had died from the disease were now out of the pool, so the vulnerable population had already died. And the third and probably the most important reason was because influenza is a winter disease. And as the spring of 1919 came, the disease prevalence just melted away as the disease went away. And although it had done the same at the end of the spring of 1918 only to come back, fortunately, it didn't come back in that winter of 1919. So the disease came to an end, just like seasonal influenza always comes to an end with the beginning of spring. All told... 675,000 people died in the U.S. That is more than the total number of American soldiers who died in all the wars of the 20th century combined. Worldwide, the flu killed an estimated 50 to 100 million people. And its impact is still around. In fact, it feels especially close as we face this brand new pandemic. You know, we've already read of people comparing the great flu pandemic of 1918 with the coronavirus outbreak, but I think that they're very, very different. First of all, Dr. Brown says, don't forget how much better medicine is now. We mentioned that back in 1918, people had no idea what was killing them. They thought it might be the planets. They thought it might be volcanoes. Compare that with what happened with the coronavirus outbreak, within about two or three weeks of those early outbreaks, we had already identified the virus and mapped its genome. We also have antibiotics today. A lot of people who died in 1918 died from secondary infections that are now preventable. We have modern intensive care units and specialists. 
So don't underestimate the gains we've made in the past 100 years. But also don't underestimate this outbreak. This is not going to be another 1918. That's not to minimize it. This has been a wake-up call for everybody to pay attention to the area of emerging viruses. We certainly need to put money into research so that when the next COVID-19 occurs, whether that will be in another year or another 10 years, we will be more ready than we were today. In the meantime, we do have one weapon to fight the spread of disease that was around in 1918 and is still around today. Guys, we all have to stay home and wash our hands. Seriously. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This podcast is produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.